Welcome to episode 170 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Hello, John. Hello, Dirk. This week on the podcast, we'll discuss human-animal chimeras and bioethics. What's a chimera? So if you know your Greek mythology, you might be familiar with this, this creature, which is a, uh, a monstrous fire-breathing hybrid, uh, which is part lion, part goat, and has a tail, which, which ends with a snake's head. So that's the uh, mythological beast. Uh, today, the term chimera is, is used in embryology to describe a hybrid organism that has tissue from multiple species. Um, and there's great interest in producing chimeras for studying disease pathology, testing out drugs, and hopefully, eventually, uh, organ transplantation, right? Mm-hmm. So growing human organs uh, in animals in, in, in some way. So scientists have worked on this kind of research for years uh, in the hopes of being able to do just that um, or you know, at, at the very least, you know, begin to understand how they might, how they might go in that direction. Um, however, uh, in November of 2015, the National Institutes of Health uh, decided that there were enough bioethical and animal welfare concerns about uh, chimera research that they, they put a ban on funding this type of research and just now they've released a request for public comment uh, around a, a proposal to amend sections of their guidelines for human stem cell research uh, around the proposed scope of, of uh, uh, human-animal chimera uh, research. And we, we have until September 6th, uh, if, you're, if you're part of the uh, public that wants to comment, uh, you can go on the NIH website and uh, up until September 6th and, and, and give your thoughts to, uh, to that agency. But there, there are so many aspects to this, uh, this very promising technology that, that uh, can, can make you feel uneasy if you're not familiar with, with, the, uh, with the history of it. There's, there's also a, a point worth making that uh, for... Cardiac patients who who have have problems with uh, the valves in their heart were already implanting uh, animal valves from uh, you know uh, bovine or uh, from uh, uh, porcine or uh, whatever the uh, equine is the, is the other one. I love your use of the eins, John. Yeah, I've, I'd be I'm, saying horses, cows, pigs. Right. Know, I, I was trying so to so articulate. I was trying to get the terms right. I couldn't. I couldn't remember them. Uh, so, so there's already um, the usage of of certain you know parts of animal organs in in humans, which is sort of the opposite route. Uh, from what we're talking about here. Additionally, uh, for, for folks with diabetes, uh, insulin is, is uh, porcine-derived, or it can be. Uh, so, so that's another, another area where we're using you know, an animal product or, or part of an animal uh, to help human life forward uh, as, as context for that. But Dirk, what, what's your impression on the NIH, you know, reopening this research potentially uh, to, to research scientists? 
It's interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, so much of the things we talk about are interesting, but chimeras are, for me, particularly interesting and scary. And, um, I mean, it's really like something out of a Hieronymus Bosch uh, or a piece of artwork. Um, you know, we're really bringing the nightmares to life. And, I mean, maybe the problem is our framing, that we shouldn't view them as nightmares. But this is happening, you know. I mean, we're not that far from potentially, um, theoretically, based on what we know of the science and how we can manipulate um, manipulate various types of organic matter and uh, genome from having a theoretical, you know, ape with a human face or a um, pig with human feet or something. You know, I mean, these right. specific examples may, may or may not be possible, but they're uh, emblematic of things that are possible in terms of, um, you know, combining the human form with, with the animal. Um, from the NIH's perspective, the concerns are more ethical. So um, my understanding is that it is less about the, the hand and the foot and more about the mind and the, the soul, so to speak. You know, um, if we are imbuing into these animals, um, you know, human consciousness, the ability to think um, like a person, to have self-awareness in, in ways that we would understand as human, um, that that's, that's something to be avoided. And I, I think the NIH closed things down in order to avoid those types of situations and now is opening things up in a care, careful, with scare quotes way, meaning that's, I think, their perspective more so than my own, although I may share it. Um, I'm, I'm not sure yet, um, but um, opening it up in ways that are more controlled and careful and um, it, it, that don't allow um, scenarios that could result in that sort of human consciousness and awareness and what we might call life scientifically manifest in, in different animals. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see where these uh, bioethical and, and ethical um, boundaries are being drawn, especially around, uh, you know, a state of consciousness, right? That as being a, a call it either sacred or, or a, a, a position of, of human importance that, that, you know, that, that's, that's a barrier that we don't necessarily want to, uh, want to cross. So I, I find that interesting. And, and I also find that, uh, you know, the, the general procedures for getting commentary and, and sort of being slow to embark on this research, I, I think, is, is generally speaking the right way to, to approach this technology, especially, you know, the public commentary, right, I, I think is critical. Um, I, I think that science and, and research science in, in particular needs to engage more with, with the public uh, and, and public discussion just because there is so much technology right now that is potentially scary and potentially very helpful uh, to, to the human condition. So, but in order to bring people along or, or at least to set the boundaries in, in ways that um, are beneficial for both, you know, research science and uh, the the general public in the long term, I think the the process that the NIH is embarking on is is correct and and probably needs to be replicated um, 
more often when it comes to these kinds of discussions? I don't know if it's correct. It may be. Um, I, I certainly see from a, a traditional humanistic perspective, it's seeming correct. Um, you know, I, you know, the, the, in China, the ethics are much more gray or even black. And we have to assume that secretly China's years ahead of exploring these things, you know, um, it, it wouldn't surprise me um, at all if there were secret pictures leaked that showed bizarre, freakazoid, um, half-animal, half-human things in, in Chinese laboratories. Um, wouldn't surprise me at all. That doesn't mean it's happening today. But I, I don't think that there are the... Um, I, I don't think that the same considerations are, are happening in a certain way in that country, in that, that, that power in terms of scientific... Um, ethical checks and balances that we're, we're doing with the NIH. And so in the short term, it's very easy to say what the NIH is doing is, is correct and it's the safe way to proceed. Um, but who knows, you know, how the future will look back on that if China gets way ahead and does, does some wacky, unpredictable things, things that we, we literally can't predict because the possibilities of what could come out of these, these sciences and technologies are so beyond the pale of what we might imagine in our limited little world today. Um, you know, history might frown on the NIH's um, conservatism and, and being, being careful. I mean, um, you know, look, nuclear, um, nuclear weapons, you know, that sort of research was an example of the United States having sort of cowboy, unfettered, um, ethical, uh, uh, just jumping into this technology that is frankly a horrifying technology. And you could argue that it's on the back of that technology that the, the late 20th century, you know, U.S. as one of the dual superpowers of the world along with the Soviet Union was built. Um, is, are there things in, in the, the gray, I'll use gray instead of black, I'll be a little... I'll be a little more, um, I'll grant a little bit more grace to China, but in, in the gray ethical scientific community or sub-communities or sub-sub-communities within, within China are things happening now that will radically change the, the balance of power, the, the, um, the very structure and framing of the world um, in the decades and centuries ahead. Very well could be. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, sprouting beyond just chimeras at this point. But I mean, chimeras are a good test case because they're so freaky. I mean, at least to me, I don't know if it is to you as well, but the idea of, um, even though it wouldn't surprise me to see it, the idea of actually seeing a picture of some bizarre hybrid like that, it, it's, it's scary. It's weird. It's really, it's really unsettling actually. Um, you know, I mean, it's, I was gonna say for a long time, I don't know how many years, but for certainly a number of years now, there's been the notion of, we're going to get to the point where we can harvest organs, right? And so there's this, this abstract idea of like this, this tray with a lot of ears growing on it, right? That's weird enough in a certain way. Like, you know, I can, I can certainly get there, but it's bizarre. Um, once you're talking about living creatures um, that are, are hybridizing, you know, with, with humanity, I, I don't know. It's just, um, it's fascinating, but for me, very, very, um, very scary stuff. Yeah, I think the the word itself has a certain framing to it that um, um, presents that 
that option without necessarily um, completely describing the the research science. So so whether that's an unfortunate term or not, you know, remains to be seen. Uh, you know, certainly this research science is decades old, and the potential for gene editing techniques like CRISPR, which has exploded into the popular consciousness over the past six to nine months, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I think might have been the impetus for uh, the NIH to at least sort of open up these comments again, just because it's now so much easier or potentially so much easier to do if you can, uh, you know, make these kinds of gene edits and, you know, in conjunction with uh, these stem cell techniques that that they were uh, already exploring. So I, uh, to get back to my, you know, original thought around uh, the term itself, which is, you know, a term for a monster, it's definitely coloring our, our thoughts and, and, and our discussion a bit. Um, I don't know where I fall on, on, on the, uh, on the spectrum of, uh, rejection or acceptance of, of this technology. But I find the, for me personally, the thought of public discussion is, is, is a good thing because I want to hear what better informed people think, uh, as, as we're mapping out these, uh, you know, these ethical guidelines. I, I generally think that, you know, this kind of public discussion is, is required for a whole host of technologies, um, and some of these discussions we're having and and some were not. Uh, but I, I, the, the, yeah, I, I'm glad there's not public discourse on a lot of this stuff, to be honest. And it's because I think the religious right would come in and muck things up. Um, you know, if, if we start to get the religious right in the middle of science, they're going to shut down a lot of stuff that is far more benign than chimeras. I'm, I'm happy to um, not have a discourse that is inclusive of um, – People who I think are driven um, by by ignorant and outdated worldviews that aren't um, in step with where the world is is going now. Um, it must be a great time to be a philosopher. You know, in in the 1990s when I was in university, I took a lot of philosophy classes, and it was almost all theoretical at that point. Like when you were talking about practical and applied philosophy, most of it was like in the realm of you know medical ethics and stuff. It was really narrow. Um, now, you know, the, as science and technology, engineering, business are thrusting us into these applied, real-world, complicated situations that take what used to be these lofty theoretical things and make them concrete and real and applied and things that we're not um, figuring out proactively ahead of time to get to a smart place but trying to reactively scramble to in real time um, and probably often behind, you know, the, the commercialization is dragging the ethicists and philosophers behind, which probably isn't, isn't super smart. But the, the problem, again, is you have, you have um, nation states like China, Russia, um, that are going to, to dive into the gray ethics, um, gray ethical areas with both feet, and, and it just sort of sucks us all along for the ride. Yeah, I think, you know, your, your examples there, I, I, I do think China has, has some pretty... Um, sort of powerful research science, uh, especially in the area of genomics, and is uh, you know a very strong competitor with the United States in that area. 
Russia, in contrast, from what I understand, just because, uh, you know, early on genomic science was was completely rejected as being uh, a bourgeois uh, uh, conceit, basically. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think Russia has has uh, uh, those capabilities yet, but I think the point is well taken that there are areas uh, of, of this world where research science is unfettered in comparison to uh, the United States, for, for sure. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D. Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 170 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>